0: Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 62. Today is the last in a series of episodes which takes us on an epic trip from Love Field in Dallas to Andrews Air Force Base. On a personal note, I've been on a bit of a wander over the last two weeks, so sorry about how long it's taken to get out this last episode to you. But the good news is the autopsy starts tomorrow. So, without further ado, Let's listen to episode 62 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It was scribbled in his own handwriting on a single sheet of official stationery from Air Force One. Four points. It's preserved today, actually. But just three were filled in. Staff, cabinet, leadership. Pestle beside the numbers 1, 2, and 3. Those were the three words that Lyndon Johnson wrote as he began to emerge from the fog. Too overwhelmed to complete the fourth. He was nearly by himself, racing across the sky, almost at mock speed. A concept of the modern world that his grandfather, or perhaps even his father, would scarcely understand. Wondering if he was ever going to make it home again. Home was far away, and he was going far from it, not to it. But at this moment, he was tasked with maintaining order, rebuilding, and administration one that had just been decimated by the loss of one of the most charismatic men to walk the earth in recent memory. Handsome, intellectual, yet playful, steely, sexual, sensitive, hard as nails when it was required. This JFK had the full money, as they say. Johnson was not that man, despite all that he was. And he was a lot in his own right. One of the most powerful men to ever walk the Senate floor in the history of this country. But as mountainous as that was, it was not comparable to JFK. And Johnson knew it. Johnson had a bigger-than-life history of working the phones, working the flesh. It was part of his political being, and he was reverting back to his core competencies. In those days, there were limitations to phone calls from the skies, even on Air Force One he pushed the limit of the technology and made as many as the technology would allow him on the plane that day. The biggest impediment in some ways was the transmission and reception lag. This occurred when a plane was in the air. It made the back and forth of a conversation quite difficult at times. Not like today. There was a lot to contemplate in those moments. Shooting a president creates chaos everywhere. The stock market in New York closed early that day after beginning a freefall. It's hard to estimate how important the development of an official narrative is if you're in the head spot, the spot that has the responsibility of telling everyone else officially what happened and what is happening. I don't like that fact, but personally, I understand it. I understand how this whole business got started. I understand why it got started, and so should you. Like the elegant twisting and turning of two dancers out there by themselves and commanding the dance floor, the rhythm in the song comes with a story, written or unwritten. The flow of events takes over, nudged a little one way or the other, as much as can be done by the force at hand. And there were many of them in this story of the JFK assassination. That is why the panoply of this story is so, so hard to follow, and now nearly impossible to uncover all the truth. Much of this story is covered with morose talk and feelings, and I know that sometimes it's hard to stay with it. So to the listeners of this podcast, I get that. So thank you for that for staying with it. But if you're still listening at this stage, you too know that this was truly a loss for not just us. I mean, just us in this country. It was a loss for the world. Because not often does a man like this come along, really, in the history of the world. Just not that often. Sir Lawrence Olivier stopped a performance at London's Old Vic Theatre. He announced the news of JFK's death, and he asked the audience to stand as the orchestra played Yes, the Star-Spangled Banner. Big Ben told for an hour. In Berlin, the city that had so loved JFK, well, 60,000 gathered for a torchlight procession. Even Moscow residents cried in the street. Whatever might have invaded your mind over the last year or so about this country, our country here in America, the ugliness of the assault on the Capitol and the sense of desperation you must have had in life in order to get to that point and to do that. And the same goes for the violent protesting in many cities about race relations. Well, there was a moment right then in 1963 when the whole world stood and saluted, and placed their hand on their chest, and blew a kiss across the water. If you could weigh the loss, it would have tilted the world at that moment. But in the beautiful words of the songwriter and singer Carol King, you have to get up every morning with a smile on your face, and show the world all the love in your heart. And at a time like this, that was especially necessary by the peoples of the world. Because this was inexplicable, regardless of what your political persuasion was. There were more practical communications that should have occurred in those moments of chaos that didn't. While Rufus Youngblood's wife was contacted almost immediately and relieved of the trauma that came with the weight, the trauma that came with the anxiety associated with the unknown... You see, she was informed that her husband was safe and was not one of the Secret Service agents that had purportedly been shot that day. Not so for the wife of William Greer, the driver of President Kennedy's limousine. She would wait long hours before confirmation of that was received. Trauma takes many forms in such an event of this nature. The November sun set quickly as the plane moved east, but a different darkness settled in the cockpit. Colonel Swindle would position the plane over the sky to avoid the turbulence below. Such an appropriate metaphor for all that was going on in the country on the ground at that moment. Johnson would make his way into the stateroom and ask for Bill Moyers, Jack Valenti, and Liz Carpenter to come meet with him. I want you to put something down for me to say when we land at Andrews, he said. Nothing long. Make it brief. We'll have plenty of time later to say more. Johnson got three drafts on what to say as he stepped off the plane, one from each of them. He himself read them and then put them together in an edited version, what he would use in his first words to the world. He was sober as a cow that day, and he stayed that way. Johnson was a notorious drinker, but not on that flight back from Dallas. He drank coffee on the way back to Washington. The White House communications team tried several times to put through a condolence message from Queen Elizabeth. They finally passed it along, in addition to three or four other calls from heads of state, many of them finally received by General Clifton's aide. While he wasn't able to receive them all in the air, at least Johnson would get many of the messages later that night when he was back in Washington. It's hard to imagine a circumstance where the President of the United States is that high up, literally in rarefied air and with such pressing priorities. You know, when messages from the Queen of England have a hard time getting to him directly, that is rarefied air and circumstance but that was the case. As happens in moments like this, men who have been loyal to the predecessor begin to plan their own departure. On the plane that day, Johnson would initially call Kenny O'Donnell in for a moment and then subsequently ask for his presence three more times during the flight, all but the first rebuffed by O'Donnell. In the only encounter with Johnson, Johnson pleaded with O'Donnell to stay on telling him how much he needed him, how much Johnson, a man from the deep south, needed a bridge to the northern part of the country, to the Easterners and the eastern establishment that controlled so much, and that Johnson, as powerful as he was in his own right, was far from being accepted by that constituency, at least at that moment. And as he knew so well that he likely would never really be a part of it. O'Donnell was non-committal at that moment, to be expected, but the real answer was already known. He was going away from and not leaning into the new presidency. It was a tragic ending for him, really, his own ending that started on that day and ended less than a decade later, that is, O'Donnell's life as a whole, and it was after such a glorious crescendo that had come in the last three years. The clock really was ticking for him. It's a good lesson to all of us. In whatever endeavors we undertake, they should all be undertaken at God's speed. Not everybody wanted out. There are always the ones who don't feel that way about the new boss, and then there are those where the power of their roles is intoxicating to them. Malcolm Kilduff was one such example in the administration. He quickly gravitated to the new president and pivoted out of the Kennedy camp. Whether it was for a sense of duty to the country in such an important moment and position as a White House spokesperson, or whether it was just loyalty to Johnson, or a little bit of both, and I sense it was the latter. It was, by definition, a pivot away from the Kennedys and the Irish Mafia. Pilots are infamous for being cool under pressure. Remember Sully over the Hudson River? Colonel Swindle was a highly respected pilot, but his affinity for the president penetrated whatever armor a pilot wears. He would say, as he reached 41,000 feet, that he would begin to understand the gravity of the circumstance that had just happened that day. Later, he would describe it as suddenly realizing that President Kennedy was dead. He felt the world had ended, and it became a struggle to continue. The thing that he loved the most, to fly. Well, things had changed. That flight had changed things for him, too, now. With that, he would go on to say, I know that I personally will never again enjoy flying as I did before. Of this group that was so close to the president and took this solemn ride home with him, each of them had their own experience. Each of them had to cope in some ways, just as the rest of the world did. But they knew him. It was more. It was more personal than that. It was much more. Conversations were going on in pieces among the group, and much of it was therapy for the trauma they were all experiencing. Each trying to console. Each trying to find consolation. Evelyn Lincoln at a loss for words at one point, turned and said to Jackie, everything's going to be all right. Jackie just looked at her and said, oh, Mrs. Lincoln. There was something about that coffin, too. No one would touch it throughout the flight, and there were many around it. So much conveyed among all of them, not taken down, and at this point in history, now just taken to the grave. Many of them on the plane that day with their own elements of guilt. Bill Greer as the driver. Kenny O'Donnell as the one who gave the order to remove the bubble top. Surely what the president commanded, but still, there was just plenty of guilt to go around. At one point, Jackie Kennedy openly talked about the parallels of martyrdom between her husband and Abraham Lincoln. It was a theme that would dominate the entire flight. Jackie had always been cognizant of her husband's legacy. Kennedy was an impressive student of the history of the world. In some ways, Jackie too. She would wonder, what would the world say about this man who had so many faces and facets? What would be said in that gut-wrenching emotional moment? And perhaps more importantly, what would be said afterward about this man that was now most assuredly assigned a role in history that was bigger than life. There was much for Johnson and his team to do in that short two hours or so on the plane. Among the more important calls they would make, Johnson and Ladybird would call JFK's mother. Mrs. Kennedy, Johnson started out, I wish to God there was something I could say to you and I want to tell you that we're grieving with you, he said. Rose Kennedy would respond as only she could, her full faithfulness in Boston decorum on display. Thank you very much. That's very nice. I know you love Jack, and he loved you, she replied in a way that was seemingly devoid of the emotion you might expect from a mother who had just lost a favored son. Unfortunately, She had practiced at it already in life, having lost two children before Jack. Nothing less than a dreadful circumstance for a mother, and she would lose more in the future. If there is anything we can do, Lady Bird began. Thank you, Lady Bird. Thank you, Mr. President, Mrs. Kennedy said, ending the call, seemingly with no more that could be said. Jackie continued to think about the funeral. Wanting Cardinal Cushing to do the Mass, the same man who had married them, she would have the Italian tenor Luigi Vina sing Ave Maria at the funeral. Jack would have loved it, she thought. Johnson would continue with the busy work of forming a new government. He had concerns, rightly so, about the Russians. Still, little was known about who was involved. While he was on a plane, he kept a keen interest in what was happening with the suspect back in Dallas as well. Who was this Lee Harvey Oswald? It's the Kremlin that worries me, Johnson would recall later. It can't be allowed to detect a waiver. Khrushchev is asking himself right now, what kind of man I am. He's got to know he's dealing with a man of determination. Maybe as part of that, Johnson rejected the idea of a secret landing of Air Force One for security reasons, something that had been suggested by his advisors. He wanted the landing of the plane to be as normal as it could be, with normal access by the press. In the aft of the plane, the morosity of the moment continued. There was an important conversation that had not been had yet. It was one that was needed to be had with Jackie herself, and the task of doing it was left up to Dr. George Berkeley, Kennedy's personal physician. Dr. Berkeley would have to sit down and tell Jackie that her husband's body would be the subject of an autopsy. It would be required. When Dr. Berkeley delivered the news, Jackie was surprised, even though she was there and witnessed what had happened in Dallas at Parkland. She would still ask, why? Why would it need to be done? And she even got demonstrative saying that it doesn't have to be done. Berkeley was left with the unenviable task of being firm with the First Lady and insisting that it did have to be done. The bullet that killed her husband was evidence and it would need to be removed. At this moment, there was still a living suspect in the murder of the president and all the anticipated elements of a murder trial were still applicable in the circumstance. Little did they know of what would happen just two days later. Berkeley would give Jackie some choices. Walter Reed Army Hospital or Bethesda Naval Hospital, or any other hospital of her own choosing, he was desperate to help ease Jackie's mind, but still take care of the task. Jackie thought about it and decided that JFK was a naval officer, and so the autopsy should be done at Bethesda Naval Hospital. As they got closer to landing, Jackie would once again be asked about the possibility of changing out of her blood-stained clothes, and she again repeated her own personal litany. No, let them see what they have done to Jack she was already lamenting that Cecil Stoughton's photograph was after she had wiped Jack's blood from her face. They would then offer up the idea that she could exit out the other side of the plane and avoid the throng of reporters. And again, she said, no, we are going out of the plane the normal way. Just as the new president was determined to stare down the Soviets, Jackie was determined for the world to see the results of the evil that had been activated that day, regardless of where that evil had come from. And she would make one more request that day that was to be honored. She would insist that instead of the honor guard carrying the coffin off of Air Force One that day, that his friends, just like they had done in Dallas to carry him on the plane, would carry him off. Only this time, they would at least have the benefit of using a scissors lift. A cargo carrier of sorts, a big box that was able to move up and down on a scissor-like device. It was a good thing to have, especially after the amount of alcohol that had been consumed on the flight by the president's friends. In fact, it might have been considered essential equipment for this last faithful exit from Air Force One for the slain president. Rufus Youngblood had strongly recommended to the new president that he go directly to the White House and stay the night there, where the security was tightest. But Johnson, to his credit, resisted that urging and he insisted on going home to his own estate in the Elms. He was at least momentarily conscious of how that would look and conscious of the privacy of Jackie. That would not last long. But for this first night, it was decided. And honored. There is something about the solace and comfort of an airplane that is 41,000 feet up in the air. Safe from most everything but weather and the mechanical failure of the plane itself. And there are moments in life where such fear of those things is totally subordinated to all of those fears still on the ground. Safe from the evil that seems to lurk everywhere in moments like the ones they were experiencing. That plane ride, it would not last long enough. Eventually, they were back in Washington, and Colonel Swindle was landing the plane at Andrews Air Force Base. All the ordinary and extraordinary preparations had been made. There were cars lined up to take some of the passengers. There were helicopters that would take the new president to the White House. There were ambulances and more cars that would Head to Bethesda for the autopsy. There was a debate over whether to take the coffin by helicopter, but immediately the weight of the coffin and the nighttime flight gave way to a decision to transport the body by ground ambulance. When the plane came to its stop on the tarmac, the reality of what was to come began to seep back into the circumstance. Johnson would take the lead and say, Let's get everybody together, and with that command, the bulk of the passengers made their way to the rear of the plane, where they would go down the stairs of Air Force One. There was a sequence of departure that seemed to be thought about and ready to go. The Kennedys closest to the door with the casket, then Johnson, then his aides and the congressmen behind him. Johnson, as he stood waiting, would kiss the hand of a Kennedy aide. What came next was totally unexpected. The Attorney General had made his way to Andrews Air Force Base and had boarded the plane, and as the entire passenger group was set to disembark through the rear door, Robert Kennedy had stepped onto the plane through the front door of Air Force One. There were tears flowing down the face of the Attorney General, and he would head toward the rear of the plane and aggressively make his way toward the back in search of Jackie. Politely, but firmly, he was pushing past other passengers in a relentless quest to find Jackie before she left the plane. Excuse me, excuse me, he said, pushing through all the people in the rear of the chain. Where's Jackie? I want to be with Jackie. In his singular quest to find her, he pushed right past the new president, shunning the extended hand of the man from Texas and saying nothing to the new president as he pushed by him in the cabin. He would find Jackie and be by her side as the passengers disembarked and the scissors lift was put in place to move the casket off the plane. Robert and Jackie would be right there for all the world to see as they accompanied their friends and colleagues and the casket of the president off the plane. The press corps was in full force. There were also diplomats military personnel, and just lookers-on, too. And as President Johnson himself now stepped off the plane and up to a collection of microphones, the whole world was listening, and the cameras were rolling, and it was most certainly a piece of American history never to be forgot. Like so many moments that had already occurred on that November day, The 5.59 p.m. touchdown assured that the entire contingent would be disembarking in the darkness of the fall, and that Johnson would address the world in a darkness that seemed to match the morosity of the moment. Johnson had readied himself before touchdown, shaving and trying to freshen up before he would have to make his way in front of the cameras and newsmen. Senators Everett Dirksen, Hubert Humphrey, and Mike Mansfield waited near the press area. Nearby, helicopters were waiting to take the new president and the new first lady and her widowed predecessor to the White House, but those plans would soon change as Jackie would not go to the White House, but would insist on accompanying her dead husband to Bethesda for the autopsy. Johnson would step up and read just seven sentences of humbling, heartfelt words, spoken by a country man from Texas in the aftermath of one of the most tragic political circumstances in the nation's short history. After the editing on the plane, the words of the three became his. This was a message delivered in a way that could be received at that moment by every American. He would say this, This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep personal tragedy. I know the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bears. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask only for your help and God's. a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be waived. For me, it is a deep personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask for your help and God's. Thank you for listening to Episode 62 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.